In October 2000, the USS Cole was attacked by suicide bombers while in port in Aden, Yemen for a routine fuel stop. Cole completed mooring at 0930 and began refueling at around 1030. Around 1118 local time, a small fiberglass boat carrying C-4 explosives and two suicide bombers approached the port side of the destroyer and exploded, creating a 40 by 60 foot gash in the ship's port side, killing 17 U.S. sailors and injuring 39 others. The attack was attributed to Al-Qaeda and foreshadowed the attack on the United States less than one year later on September 11, 2001. My guest today is Command Master Chief James Parlier. He enlisted in the United States Navy in April of 1978. James spent his first years in the Navy as a hospital corpsman. He has served in several warfare communities, including aviation squadrons, surface Navy forces, including minesweepers in the Persian Gulf War, aircraft carriers, amphibious ships, destroyers, served with the Navy SEALs, and served with several naval hospitals. He was the command mass chief on USS Cole during the terrorist attack and received commendations for his actions. Towards the end of his career, he accepted a job for a critical billet as command mass chief Naval Station Great Lakes and Navy Region Midwest, serving over 114,000 personnel and their families until his retirement in November 2006. Since his retirement, James has managed a defense contract for the Navy. He's a professional photographer and volunteers his time with various veteran organizations. He is also active with the USS Cole trials that are still ongoing in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. He has been going to the pretrial hearings for the last 17 years. So James, thank you for uh, joining me today. Welcome to the Cutlass Podcast. How are things going? Going well and uh, with COVID-19 as good as can uh, here in North Carolina. Uh, we're happy that we are now uh, starting to try to get back to normal. Absolutely. So thanks again for taking your time, especially we're doing this today on Mother's Day. Um, so I wanted to, as we discussed, I wanted to tee up the background for people that uh, weren't familiar with it. Clearly, there's a lot written about that, and they can read about that as they go. But I really wanted to get you here to talk your perspective on you know, leadership and management. And uh, as you know, extensive career as a command mass chief, and we've either led or we've worked for leaders and managers uh, fulfilling organizational requirements. You know, we're normally involved with day-to-day operations where we have time to plan and organize and do things on a slower basis. But there are times, as you saw, where things can go drastically wrong and very quickly. And that sends you and your team into a different uh, leadership and management uh, solution set. So I want to take some time today to kind of talk through, you know, your experiences with your team's decision-making, problem-solving, what you saw go good, just offer insights that people could learn from if they're in that kind of situation going forwards. So I'm going to pick up the bombings happen. And, you know, like we know, you know, the organization's thrown immediately into crisis, right? There's no plan for this. So you're directly into, you know, trying to control damage, immediate actions and training are kicking in. So can you give us some uh, overview of the initial response and the immediate actions? Who was leading those things? And what were the immediate goals of the command uh, and your team? Again, just from my perspective, I was back after uh, we just had a MWR meeting in the training room, uh, which is uh, under the flight deck near uh, Repair 3. And after the blast, um, XO, we got on the IVEX phone. He was with us. He was the only uh, senior leader with us. And then we had a um, DC-1 Garcios with us, who's actually the leader of Repair 3, which, by the grace of God, again, we were right near. And, you know, I had agreed before the whole deployment that I'd help talk out because obviously, as you mentioned, I had skill sets of of an independent duty corpsman. So I felt I could put those to use uh, manning the AF BDS. And with that, XO realized uh, we had some serious issues. You know, we just felt the ship 
get picked up out of the water and settle back in. Uh, it was like a deadening silence. So, uh, you know, we had to assume the worst and, uh, we had to pass word of mouth, go to general quarters, you know, all the technology that you're used to using, IVIX phones and, uh, J dials, whatever, you know, just none, none of that was working. <clears throat> we didn't realize, uh, till later how much damage she took. DC one obviously manned the, uh, uh, repair locker. And then I went to the BDS, had to have it axed open. I didn't have my key with me. And surprisingly there, you know, at the time is, so different when you're going through something like that, whether it's out in the field in combat or in a situation like this, it's just time is, is not measurable as we know, but, um, had, uh, well over 20 casualties there, uh, by the app BDS, we had broken jaws, uh, limbs, strap balloons to, uh, the face and blind, some people temporarily blinded from the blast triage, obviously kicking in, uh, thinking of that. So here I'm going switching my hat from a command master chief now to a hospital corpsman again, uh, knowing that I had, you know, limited capabilities from myself as far as quals and, and would only limit myself to what I was able to do. Uh, baby doc, thank God showed up and she went ahead and helped out. And we got word by then that, uh, there was more critically injured towards Mestex because that was where ground zero was. But what was amazing is all the training that we did, whether it was damage control and in this case, medical training, stretcher bears, they paid off in saving lives because it was amazing the uh, quality of care those coal sailors got from their shipmates from the initial uh, time that they were uh, responded to to the time they got to a uh, obviously another echelon in care so we could re-establish uh, their their capability or uh, how badly they were injured. The other thing was is uh, it was amazing to see them you know just they just work around each other the damage control teams and what they were doing vice um you know the medical and what we were doing uh just we would go around each other respectfully but we were you know we were we were engaged and following uh sometimes the rules of junior sailors because they knew better than some of us uh, senior guys as far as the technical capability of of what needed to be done in saving the ship yeah and i want to get into that a little bit later because that's an important point you make when we get into the knowledge of your team and stuff so so you're, you know, interesting, like you said, you were heavily involved in the medical response. There's damage control response going on. What was your commanding officer, basically the CEO for the ship doing? What do, What's he thinking at this point? Um, Kirk Lippold was a captain. He was actually in his stateroom when it happened. And, and in talking to him later, he basically uh, grabbed his nine mil, again, not knowing the situation, but knowing that uh, we, we were in serious, uh, had serious issues and... He had to make his way down below and actually help start directing as well and set up a alternate main, uh, you know, repair locker because the main, main repair was out. It was, it was, uh, not manable. Neither was main medical nor because they were all proximal to the mess decks. Okay. You know, at some point he's trying to, you know, obviously the goal is at this point, you guys, do you, you don't know the extent of the damage, but you know, you're trying to save the ship. Is it apparent at that point you could lose the ship? Yes. Um, it, it was is amazing how quick, even by you know, because even though it's a not that big a ship, but still big enough that it took time to get through damaged spaces to get to other sailors to report damage. But it was amazing the timeliness of that those damage reports and how they got to us. Same thing with casualty reports, how we got them to the uh, main repair and and whatnot, so that the captain and the XO and Chang were all aware of what was going on. You know, it, the big thing was obvious is there's a. 40 by 60 foot hole in the side and people could see the light through the, through the hole, you yeah. know? Amazing. 
So we're so all the initial casualties are there, or the casualty control conditions are going on. Immediate actions are being taken. Where's the first period where you're like, okay, we're we've stabilized a bit, and you start to shift a little more towards the next set of problems you're going to solve. Once we got through uh, triaging, getting patients off, uh, it was amazing. They got you know those 39 most in, critically injured or seriously injured off in uh, a little over an hour and a half. Wow. Um, that, yeah, that's amazing. They had to, uh, and Bosa's mate directed getting the gangplank jerry-rigged, had to trust the local hospital, you know, to treat our sailors. But the XO, and this is leadership thinking out of the box, of all people thought about sending not only a security team with our sailors because, you know, in that part of the world's quite dangerous in, in Aden and normal for people to carry weapons around. Uh, so he wanted security to go with him and also had sent sailors as not only security but walking blood banks. Now that's thinking out of the box. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Okay. And then um, once you know, was there a point where point of touch and go where you're like, we could still lose the ship? What, is there a point where you're managing through that with ongoing engineering and damage control solutions? Um, or is there finally a point where you're like, okay, we're okay. And then you transition to kind of more of follow-up actions. Yeah. The first 72 hours was hell. Uh, no sleep. Obviously, nobody could, uh, and you saw the pictures, you'll see them if ever you've seen the magazines or books of the crew sleeping on the flight deck. And that's because, you know, obviously there was uh, birthing flooded out. We lost, you know, the main uh, machine room number one, which was the largest space. Uh, and other spaces just as incredible damage. We almost lost her that third night. Uh, once we thought we thought had things stable, we had sounding and security watches down below with battle lanterns. In un- incredible heat conditions, we had to worry about heat stress. Obviously, switch sailors out often. Um, but uh, that third night, the shaft seal, seal, uh, seal gave away, and we were about to lose the other big space, and that was main machinery room number two, proximal to the uh, shaft seal. But in the darkness and with, with little light, the damage control teams were able to uh, go down with the direction of the, uh, the main uh, repair locker uh, get that shaft seal pretty much um, clogged up with uh, anything they could find. Yeah. And again, there's pictures out there, and you may have seen them, yeah. of how they stopped and slowed down that flooding. But, you know, when that happened, we were lifting 15 degrees already. Wow. You can imagine the amount of water, seawater, plus we had contaminated uh, oil in, mixed in with it, and we uh, had to dump AFFF down uh, escape hatches and wherever, you know, hatches we found just to coat the surface to make sure that none of that ignited, obviously. Right. So you would imagine, or I would, I've never been in a situation like this, but man, I'd probably be scared. The crew is scared. Um, what was the general you know, tone of the uh, of your crew? Were they scared, shocked, and then got over it and went into action? How did you feel? Uh, adrenaline's running. You are, your pins and needles. It's amazing how the human body responds when you're in an incident. Uh, whether you're uh, again in action, live combat, uh, I've been there and that, but you just your hearing is so intense, your hearing sensitivity to the to the feeling in your fingertips, if that makes any sense. Yeah. And those first three nights too, Paul, the Yemeni were over there celebrating it, you know, for obvious reasons, and had music play. And I looked in the big eyes, and speakers pointed out over the harbor, trying to to uh, degrade the crew, or you know, tried to uh, again, like you said. Uh, get try to make it more scared or feel like they've been defeated, right. but that wasn't the case. Just pissed us off, man. Well, it's mad. Yep, and then you can leverage that, right? And you bring that into that team spirit. 
Absolutely. And, and we did. The, the leadership, uh, including myself, you know, other chiefs, we all jumped on that. And the, the thing is about, it, you know, a terrorist attack, and you've heard it before, is you've got nobody to uh, counterattack. And you really want to, you know, you, you saw your shipmates killed, injured, and you, you want to get you want to get some, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, and, and I talk often about you know, this power and influence model I use and certain influence tactics you use. Typically, when you're in a crisis situation like this, you find yourself leaning more towards because people are scared, they're uncertain, either training is kicking in, it's very pressure-based or directive leadership tactics, right? And I, I imagine that's what it was for you, right? Training kicks in, it's just giving out orders, directing people, um, leveraging the experience of your team to get things done. But you can use inspirational appeals during that too, and it sounds like you were able to do that to keep people motivated. Yes, yes, we did. I can't help but think, right, you know, as a leader, you know, I always felt like, hey, you know, there's a lot of pressure on me. There's a lot of expectation that I know what to do in a situation like this. And I'm the go-to guy or gal, and I've got to have all the answers. But as you know, and I've learned over my career, you just can't know everything, right? The situation you were thrown in, if you read not just the uh, review of the USS Cole, but if you read books like Neptune's Inferno or any kind of crisis situations, you can see that... Things happen, situations happen that you're just, you can run all the training and things you want to, but you're going to run into situations that you just don't have the answers for. So how did your crew help with like decision-making and problem-solving when either you or the typical command leaders didn't have an answer per se? We actually, you know, a lot, there was no, obviously no division in ranks. And we followed the lead again, like I I iterated before, was uh, of junior sailors that were technical experts in the area. And an example would be uh, one of our junior sailors, and I can't remember if it was a GS or a fireman, but, you know, we had just got the new SCPA system on board, which was another training uh, challenge for us as we got ready to deploy. But we had these high-pressure diesel and low-pressure diesel compressors. Well, we only had one generator working. Mains were gone, the other two generators gone, and we, we were actually needing that and using it. Well, this young sailor actually not out of a book or nothing jerry rigged that high pressure airline to the flask because you know they're gas turbine engines and generators on that destroyer yep and we're able to fill the flask and turn that turbine so that they get the gen back up unbelievable yeah so in some cases as the leader it's get out of the way and let your team unleash its creativity its innovation yep you know it's all about the mission and being uh, prepared for another attack as well thinking of that way and having the capability to do as much as we could to defend ourselves. And, you know, part of that, again, was that generator was powering comms for us because we had no comms, and we had to set up some portable comms when some Marines got in there and all. Uh, We were able to set all that up on the flight deck because, you know, obviously comms is key to the whole situation. Yeah, that would have definitely been a priority to establish. Obviously, you said you were involved in triage, and triage is all about making some hard decisions about prioritizing you know, where you're going to invest limited resources and, and medical team focus. So what were some of the harder decisions you or the commanding officer or other members of the command had to make, and what was the thought process for making those hard but I would consider right decisions for the command? Yeah, when it, after it happened, you know, I didn't know uh, initially if Doc Mosier, who was our IDC, actual IDC, was injured or killed. So I didn't know if I had the ball being a senior, not just a mass chief, but I had senior uh, skill sets, you know, from all my years in the Navy as a corpsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, 
I found myself actually hands in it for a little bit because everybody else was having their hands in whatever they needed to to save their, save the ship and our shipmates. But I wound up becoming where my position on the ship was uh, as far as where I was located. A tree, like I said, a triage officer directing care through uh, coal sailors. And then uh, I think the worst thing for me was losing a sailor. And I had to make that decision up on the on the flight deck. And sailor I just did a career development board on. Uh, he was in horrific condition. I knew he was expected. And uh, to hold it together as a leader, knowing that the sailors are looking at you. And being I served with the Marine Corps, I knew when we didn't have chaplains or religious petty officers that the corpsman was it. And so for this young man, I didn't know what his religious background was. But I said a prayer before I had to move because one of the chiefs had put his hand on my shoulder was helping me. I said, you know, James, look around, man. We need you. We had 25 casualties on the flight deck that need triage. And at that point, too, I found out Doc Moser was alive and triaging patients up by the missile deck. And he had the morphine. Uh, he's obviously qualified to give it, not me, and other stuff that he could support patients with. So I, uh, that, to me, was the hardest thing, not only in my, uh, in my position there, but in my life. Because I'd never, as a corpsman, had lost somebody like that. Uh, especially when you personally know the crew and you know what it's like being a, yeah. uh, so to personally know that young man, uh, was even more painful. Again, it, you hear the old adage, you got to put your, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and do the right thing. And that's what I did. Had some sailors move them to the helo tower so they could be with them until the end. Well, I went ahead and started triaging again and getting patients up to Doc Moser so we could get the, uh, you know, get our coal sailors off the ship to appropriate care. Absolutely. Must have been incredible to have to make that decision. So what, I mean, you had people there that knew you had to make that decision and reassured you that they understood. I guess that helped too, right? Yeah. And the word after it settled down four or five days later, a lot of sailors come up to me and patted me on the back and says, you know, we were watching you. We were watching you. That made a obviously impact on those young sailors' lives, seeing what I had to deal with there and what they had to witness. Yep. You know? So it's amazing, right? That's one of the dynamics you'll see in these crisis situations. A team will not bond probably any stronger than when this kind of thing comes together, when your life situation as a team with a – I mean now it's like we all know we're focused on one objective, one mission, and we're all coming together. Yep. Uh, so let's talk about you know, you're trying to inspire your crew to get through using those influence tactics, you know, leveraging the, you know, the, the sentiment out in town to your advantage – you're, you're probably directing people. You're probably convincing people they can do things, right? Hey, encouraging. Hey, you've got the ability to get through this. We'll all get through this together. But were there times you had to rely on some what I would call pressure-based or coercive-based leadership styles to get things done or get people focused where you had to leverage some threats? Uh, you know, Because clearly not everyone responds to the inspirational appeal. Some are shutting down. What are some examples and how did you lead in that situation? Understanding that some of those sailors were having a tough time dealing with loss of their shipmates, and some were more personal because of the relate close relationships, you know. Yep. Some were giving up, but it was a it was a matter of hey, uh, get off your rear end. Uh, but I said it in a different tone because you know we were we were at, we were being attacked. I mean, it's like war, you know. Yeah. And so it was basically get off your ass and uh, you either do the right thing here and help your shipmates, or I'll find something for you to do, or you can go uh, home with the bodies. And uh, a lot of them did that. They got off their butts and they knew that uh, they needed to help their shipmates keep the ship afloat and, and, and do what, do what's right by the ship and their shipmates. I didn't thank God have to do that a lot. A lot of them did need some, you know, you had to respect that they did probably need a little decompression time 
but you knew it was overkill when they were sitting in a that makeshift tent the exo had put up and we had food stores what we had left because we lost all our food but we were using snacks and what until we got food people were sitting by that just kind of moping and so i'd give them a little time and if it looked like they were moping too long hey it's time to put a a, a foot up their rear end and get them going you yep. know get them kick-started yeah, from the perspective of, you know, influence, you know, we call that a resistant, you know, resistant influence target. I'm old, that's, sorry, man, I'm old school. <laughs> no, that's, uh, so we talk about that being old school, but, you know, leaders have to know they're going to have to use from time to time their coercive power base and they're going to have to use pressure or legitimizing tactics, right? They may have to rely on, hey, do it because I'm the command mash chief and I'm telling you to, or do it because the instruction says, or you might have to leverage threats. We don't do that right out the gate, but... There's a time and a place for doing that. And, you know, sometimes leaders aren't very comfortable with that because they don't know, you know, when you use threats or coercion-based tactics, you have to impose some cost or threaten to impose cost. So going into that situation, you just got to know what you've got to leverage uh, and not be afraid to use that tactic when you need it. Yeah. And then, you know, you got the first few days, you know, we had Yemeni Air Force was strafing the ship. Uh, the Army set up a perimeter, but it was pointed offensively at us until we got the word out and they then turned their guns to a defensive position. So there were some scary moments that stuck with the sailors for a while, but you, as long, I found out as long as you keep them focused on the mission mainly and not what's out there and let the Marines and the SEALs handle that when they got in there, that would kind of tone down their feelings. Yep. Uh, of, of, like you said, not just being afraid uh, about what's going to happen next instead of having their mind on what's right in front of them and what they need to do. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So the command triad's a big thing we leverage in the Navy, right? That's commanding officer, the executive officer, and the command mass chief. So at this point, you know, what was your battle rhythm of meeting? You know, what are you guys thinking together? You know, what was the support you were given to the XO and the CO and those kind of things? After the first four, probably four days, five days, things, leadership was kind of segmented, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Everybody doing their own thing. What I found out, lesson learned, a big one here is we went back to doing quarters in the morning and then the group meeting with the chiefs and, the, and officers. And that alone got us focused into what we, how we needed to run the ship again and got us uh, organized, if, if I may, uh, in, in a bigger sense, uh, so that we could keep focused on the mission at hand, briefs, debriefs, just like you would in a normal situation. Even though this wasn't normal, we could still brief and debrief our challenges ahead with coal until we got more support in that makes sense absolutely and i that's that's a great point uh james that you made because we're seeing that now right when the whole covid19 thing blew up you know initially there's you know there's uncertainty introduced you know people are taken out of their normal routines a lot of disruption but as soon as you can try to get back into a routine and normalized whether as an individual or an organization it's probably a new normal but if you can get back to that sense of drumbeat, of communication, of routine, I think that goes a long way. And I think you're saying you saw that in your command. Absolutely. And it, it clicked in and things just went smooth, a lot more smoother doing that. Okay. So what was the, uh, you know, we train extensively as a Navy and other, you know, pre-planned response organizations, firefighters, policemen, you know, people train for these situations to the extent they can. So how important was your training and all the pre-planned responses you had in place to helping you mitigate through this crisis? Um, the captain had so much faith in the crew when we were training for this, uh, for our mission, which was going to be, if we ever had made it to, to the Persian Gulf, was a vertical board search and seizure in those days because of Saddam Hussein. 
what prepared us was obviously the medical and damage control training, the defensive training for weapons, weapon system. And we did it hard. I mean, we turned over over half our crew. And so we had those challenges. And you know what it's like. You start turning a lot of crew members over uh, just learning the ship alone. We did it. Did, you know, the things that we always do as sailors, like the DC Olympics, things that made it interesting, you know, and challenging. Uh, but that made a difference in the long term in helping save our ship and our shipmates. And it's training over and over and over. And I know we hate it, but then it's like I'm riding a bike. Like they say, you know, it, that I witnessed it. Sailors didn't even have to think about what they needed to do in that event. And they went and did the right thing. It was just amazing. Awesome. What's your advice to any leader or manager on, you know, how they can improve their decision making when they're under pressure or under a time constrained situation like this? Keep calm. And it's challenging and probably for some more than others. Everybody's got a different personality. Everybody's got a different way of dealing with crisis or uh, an emergent situation. But just like training, do the same thing. Keep calm because then you can think on your toes, get your you know, senses together of what's going on around you. And like you said before, with other things, don't get tunnel vision. Think out of the box. And some examples of that would be when Doc was treating patients, I noticed uh, we still had to get our deceased sailors out, our, our cold shipmates out, as well as we had rotting food in there. And the flies were getting out of hand. So I went to Doc and I said, thinking out of the box again, not as a CMC, but it's just an old doc like him. But I think anybody else would have thought of it as those flies are going to lead to uh, diseases. And those issues degrade your crew. And then the other problem, thinking out of the box, is we had no heads. We had this one little head on the pier. So, again, they can't go down and use the heads. So there's another challenge in trying to keep the crew thinking about personal hygiene. Simple things that can wind up becoming very complicated quickly. Okay. So what resources were you getting from outside, right? So for those not familiar with the military, you know, we have – an ISIC, right, an immediate superior in charge or in command. There's a supporting, supported role. They're there to support. Um, what support did you guys get from the outside, and how did you rely on that? It took about four four days, five days for the first ship to come in. It was a, actually a Canadian ship. Yemeni told them they couldn't come in, and they told them to pack sand. They did anyway. Our, so our brothers and sisters from the Canadian Navy brought us water and AFFF. As far as food sources, uh, the embassy actually was the closest thing we had there to help get support because we were a thousand nautical miles away from the nearest Navy ship, U.S. Navy ship. So it took a while for them to get down there, obviously, before they commenced operation, determined response. And then we had our Navy and Marine Corps team there to set up a perimeter. The Marine Corps provided hot chow, but we did have the Hawes and uh, Cook show up at first. And I knew the CMC on uh, Hawes, a good friend of mine that I went to the Senior Alyssa Academy with, and he came on board and asked me uh, what I needed, being an old corpsman with the Marine Corps in the field. Hot chow. And the first thing I thought of, man, was Chili Mac. <laughs> yep. They brought that Chili Mac brother. They were smiling. They were recharged and ready to go, dude. Uh, it was amazing. Those were our resources was the battle group that came in from the Gulf uh, that came down to assist. And the Marine Corps, Navy Marine Corps team, the SEALs came in, set up a perimeter as well for us because there was still, obviously, Intel had us uh, – at a really high threat of being attacked again because they, they wanted to finish their job. And, you know, that, that this was going to become a recruiting tool for Al-Qaeda, yep. this whole thing, you know. Yes. Yeah, so I think that's a, a, another important point out of this for people to take away is, 
you're never in this alone, right? Regardless if you think you are or not. Like I said, I was a, I grew up in the Navy nuclear power program. You know, we were trained extensively. I, I always found myself doing well. I could think well, you know, when not under pressure, but when bells and whistles and alarms started going off, you know, I just psychologically and how, how I was wired, you know, I would gauge lock in or might narrow my focus, right? And uh, one of the tenets of naval nuclear power is this concept of watch team backup, right? So there's an understanding that not every human, you know, reacts differently. We're not machines. So we rely on team and we rely on backup and we rely on other people. So when you're in this situation as a leader or manager for our listeners out there, rely on your resources, have relationships established ahead of time, and then leverage those to your advantage. Uh, and I think you can find that to your success. Yeah, they, they were really a big help. We we actually offered sailors and made some of them go to the other ships, but mainly the Camden. But I went to the Hawes for a day, but I had to go back to my ship, obviously. But uh, just to decompress and take a good shower and, and then go back to feel recharged, you know. But those things alone, and they provided uh, sounding teams and other damage control support from those ships that made all the difference, again, in helping us get out of there as quickly as possible. Okay. So, you know, we always like the money more quarterback, right? There's some learning to be done there. So if you could go back and do it all again, uh, is there anything you do differently? Is there things you would have done ahead of time? Or what did you learn coming out of this? That I needed to watch um, putting my personal feelings sometimes interjected into decisions and situations, especially when it came to crew members that pissed me off and the way I handle it. And, and I'm not going to give the whole story here, but uh, I was disrespectful to one of our junior officers and I regretted it. And uh, it was just because I just put my shipmates, I put help put five of them in body bags and uh, was dealing with some other leadership challenges as a CMC as well. And it just took one little thing to set me off and I, I cussed them out and I was wrong. But that's human. Yes. Captain knew about it. XO knew about it. And it took me a while to apologize to this young officer, but I did. I'm hard-headed. Uh, that was another uh, attribute of mine that I had to get past is quit being hard-headed uh, and, and do the right thing. So, in other words, like I said before to others, you take 20 milligrams to suck it up and you do it the right thing. You know, yeah. you've got to. It talk, you have to do it right by the mission and your command. Yeah, we talk extensively. One of the attributes of a good leader or manager is humility and that, you know, not all of us have it all the time, but it's good if you can ground yourself in that and come back to it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think another thing all us command master stars, we tend to be uh, really hard on ourselves and what we may have done or not done. And I found myself sometimes doing that. And sometimes I find myself carrying guilt. And that's that's normal uh, where I shouldn't have. But it took me a while to figure that out or with the help of my shipmates, my fellow chiefs uh, helped me figure that out. Okay, so um, so great story, great experiences. Um, do you have any suggested books you would suggest, any articles, any resources you would offer to the listeners? Yeah, there's a, a couple. Well, you know, the captain wrote Front Burner, and that's probably a good history. The first part of the book is a good description of everything that happened from heroics of the crew and the challenges and leadership. Uh, so I do recommend that. It's out there. Okay. And then one of the FBI, you know, the FBI came out there and responded. We had them on board too. And uh, one of the agents wrote a book called The Black Banners. And it's the inside story of 9-11 and the war against Al-Qaeda. Uh, and it also has uh, some description and dealings with the, the coal before the 9-11 attack. And then lastly would be The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11. Great. Awesome. 
you do public speaking with this, right? If you're invited. So I no, I don't want to yeah. outreach, but how can people get a hold of you if they want you to, or if they want to learn more information or if they want to invite you to speak? They can email me. Do I need to give you that info? Or? No, I'll put that in this. Yeah, I'll put that down in the, the show description for them to be able to contact. I just want to make sure they can contact you because you've got a great story. I've heard it, you know, at, at several speaking. So I would encourage any listeners that want to get, you know, not just the leadership aspect, but more detail, um, from your firsthand experience, um, it's a piece of living history and it's important for you to be able to tell that story. Thanks again. My guest today has been retired man, Mass Chief James Parlier. Thank you for your time and sharing your insights, James. Yes, sir. And, uh, again, thank you for letting me have the honor to speak and, uh, tell you some of my lessons learned, uh, not only for myself, but on behalf of the crew and those that we lost. And always remember those gold star parents, obviously that, uh, have to deal with this every day. Yeah, that's a great way to finish it up. So thanks again to the audience for listening to the Cutlass Podcast. If you want to learn more about the topic we've discussed today or any other topics that we discuss in other episodes, check out the Chief Petty Officer's Guide and the other resources that we're going to list in the episode description. I'm Paul Kingsbury. Work to keep your leadership cutlass sharp. Read, listen, reflect, and grow. Then take what you learn and go make a positive difference in your professional and personal life.